0: Hey, everybody, Saul Marquez with the Outcomes Rocket. I want to welcome you back to another podcast on the rocket. Today, I have the privilege of, of actually having Earl Hutz back on the podcast today. Earl, welcome back. It's so great to be back with Thanks you. Thanks for
1: having me again, Saul.
0: <laughs> of Glad course. to be back again. Oh, man. It's so great to, to see you. Three and a half years, lots of updates. Folks, let me give you a quick intro on Earl before we kick things off. He is the chief operating officer at Thoroughcare. He's an accomplished operations and services leader in the healthcare IT industry, specializing in enterprise software development, consulting, and deployment with significant experience leading professional and service uh, technical operations teams. As the chief operating officer at Thoroughcare, he provides leadership and oversight across numerous business functions, including product strategy and development, contracting, strategic partnerships making the wheels turn there. I'm so excited to have him back. We're going to be covering a lot of great topics around value-based care and things you should know. Earl, welcome. Thanks again, Saul. Thank you for that uh, great introduction. Absolutely. And and look, yeah, man, it's great to have you back. Uh, For those of, of you that haven't had a chance to meet Earl, I'm going to link up the previous podcast we did in the show notes so you have access to that. But for, for folks listening now, Earl, for their benefit, tell us about your background in health tech.
1: Yeah, 25 years in healthcare IT. Uh, I started as a programmer back in the, and I'll date myself here, back in the late 90s, so I'll let everyone do the math. <laughs> and Try to project my age, but uh, I started as a programmer and I, I worked for a, a really great company uh, named Medicision out of the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. Uh, it was kind of my introduction to care management, uh, working and providing platform services to the payer community. Uh, through that company, I had the luxury of working with a lot of great people and having the opportunity to advance my career. And I made a, a couple of stops after my 15-year tour at Medicision. I worked for a couple of other great companies in the space. Um, a good friend and colleague, Dan Godla, founded ThoroughCare back in the early 2010s. And as he was looking to find a way to ramp up this business, you know, I was looking for other opportunities and we found that Intersection and uh, he brought me on board to help run his operations division. Uh, and that was back in 2017 when I joined. So I've been here a little over six and a half years now, and we're really making our mark in the industry and supporting providers and providing them with platform services that are, you know, efficient, easy to use and really help with,
0: with providers adjustments to a value-based care world. Yeah, no, that's uh, a great history there, Earl. And a lot has changed since we last talked, uh, COVID. And I mean, there's a lot of change happening now. How has technology shepherded change in healthcare delivery models over the 25 years you've been in the business?
1: It's a great question. You know, there's certainly been, uh, just I'll stick to the obvious, I think, you know, data access, you know, and persistence. I think, you know, we've, the advancement of technology over the past 25 years has really you know expanded our ability to track data it's as simple as that the more data we have at our disposal the better we can identify you know the real challenges within our patient populations and figure out who's the, the riskiest of the risky so to speak um and be able to leverage that data to drive improvements and outcomes um certainly advancements in the patient engagement side, through telehealth, through remote patient monitoring, you know these are things and services that we just simply didn't have even ten years ago to the to the levels that we have them today. I don't know that we had them as much as we, you know, even three years ago when we first met Saul. So, yeah. you know, a lot of advancement, and you see them a, a shift in a lot of ways in the model and moving toward one that is less on premises and and more about engaging people in their homes. So. You know, the health at home concept is really certainly starting to gain a lot of momentum. Um, and that's definitely supported through technological advancements, particularly in the area of tele- telehealth. Uh, patient education access has expanded through technology, right? So there's a lot of great platform vendors that are helping educate our patients. And certainly that wouldn't be as you know, as opportunistic as it is without the advancements in tech. And you know, lastly, cloud technologies make it a lot easier for a lot of providers to be able to procure systems. You know, um, there's a lot of movement and requirements in EHR. You know, with EHR mandates and requirements, so to speak, uh, there were less opportunities yesterday than there are today for a lot of providers to find low-cost solutions that provide a lot of value, um, and they can be done through the cloud. So you don't have that you know internal infrastructure cost that was significant footprint and burden in the past.
0: Yeah, these are all significant changes. And with that is a wave, at least an attempted wave of fee for value versus fee for volume. What what driving factors do you think, you know, has led to the industry to recognize that that's needed?
1: Yeah, it's as simple as, you know, we're spending a lot of money on our patients and they're still relatively unwell, right? Just to throw some statistics out, I think the healthcare spend in 2021 was 18% of GDP. It was about $4.3 trillion. You know, we have uh, an aging population. So there's 65 million Americans enrolled in Medicare today. You know, that's a combination of the elderly and people who have physical disabilities, probably about 93% of that number, that population number is attributed to the elderly. Obviously, you know, it's harder to manage your your health conditions as you get older. So obviously it's going to increase the spend, but people are relatively unwell and they're frustrated about it, right? So we have to get more value out of our care that we're providing and try to tamp down the overutilization of services that really aren't driving improvements in the health community.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so you know, value-based care could have varied interpretations. Let's let's sort of before we continue the conversation on that, Errol. Let's why don't we center ourselves on how you would define it in your own words?
1: Okay, so I'll try to keep it as as generic as possible. Uh, I, I won't get too textbookish with the definition of, of value-based care. For me, it's about you know. Better utilizing our spend to get more value out of it, right? So, as I just mentioned, we're spending a lot of money. People are still experiencing, you know, a lack in in health improvement, and outcome improvement, and quality of life. Uh, I'd like to focus a lot on prevention, being proactive versus reactive, or preventative, in a sense. So, in, in the software development community, we always we would seem to refer from time to time when we'd have a bug in our software and we would have a lot of people react to the defects in our software and they would be applauded for their great efforts in reacting to fixing a problem and resolving an issue and getting things back up to speed, right? There seems to be a lot of flash in that and it's there's not a lot of flash in prevention, right? And it's certainly akin to fire prevention versus firefighting, right? We fight the fire, Everybody applauds the firefighting. Pre- preventing the fires are boring, right? Yep. <laughs> so to speak. So you know, to be proactive, to be preventative, um, to try to find ourselves in a position where we understand that people aren't very well. And that may be due to a number of, of reasons, certainly. But there's a way that you can kind of maintain some of those challenges more appropriately with our patient population. And just find ways to improve on their quality of life rather than having to react to an acute or critical care situation that you know, will ultimately or hopefully resolve. But it doesn't mean you're doing anything to prevent that situation from occurring again and again. Love so it. We have to find better ways. To- yeah, to that's
0: that. clear. That's clear, right? And 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 thank you for doing that. I just wanted to level set because when we talk about value-based care, there's a lot of assumptions, kind of like when you talk about remote patient monitoring. That also is a very loaded term. Certainly. <laughs> so so definitely We're wanted s- to anchor us there. Um, because the next question is, you know, organizations struggle with this. So how do they best transition to value-based care? and What are your recommendations?
1: Yeah, so, so let's talk about fee-for-service. For a quick second, so I think people conflate fee for service with, you know, point of care delivery, right? So a fee for service where you end up at your doctor's office, you don't feel well, they run a multitude of tests on you, they may send you to the specialist, so on and so forth. Um, I think too many people don't realize that there are a lot of value based care opportunities under a fee-for-service umbrella. So I think at P- there, are, there are a lot of organizations out there that assume, well, if I'm gonna move into a value-based care contracting model, that it's attributed base, right? We will pay you based on your riskiest patients, we'll give you a set fee for that patient, and then you have ma- to manage within your means to ensure that you're not overspending on that patient, right? And there's a lot of people that are challenged by such a sharp transition from a more traditional, we get paid for the services that we render Right versus, you know, just being paid at a fixed price point per patient. They don't have an easy time making that transition because they don't have the operational wherewithal to really support that type of transition so easily. Because just and used to working in an old model, Mm -hmm. there are numerous fee for service programs out there that support a value based care model. The Chronic care management program. Talk about remote patient monitoring programs. There are numerous. You know wellness preventative programs starting with your annual wellness visits. You can support care transitions through fee-for-service. You can support behavioral health through through fee-for-service. There's a lot out there to be had under a more traditional fee-for-service structure that you're getting paid for the service that you're rendering. While at the same time, you can start to evaluate yourself or against your peers as to how well your patients are moving the needle and demonstrating improved health outcomes, right? So as you're so there's an opportunity to to support a transition to a more, you know, risk sharing based payment model that supports more, you know, of an attributed payment per patient model than, than fee for service did, and then get yourself more familiar with value based care concepts and operations under fee for service before you make that transition. I think people feel like they're falling off a pretty steep cliff if they have to move into the value based care world, and it really doesn't have to operate that
0: way. That's great, Earl, and 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 it sounds like there's a lot of hidden gems in fee for service, to really start exercising those those value based care muscles, to you get it to a certain capacity and and you know specialty, to actually do something about it that's bigger in scale. Um, you know, there's there's the patient side, there's the physician side, there's the insurance side, right, and all these things are are sure. things that we have to think about. What are the cr- critical elements? that, that need to be achieved for successful value-based care delivery.
1: So I'll start just talking generally about primary care. I don't know if you're aware of this. There's 75 million Americans that don't have a primary care physician today. So I guess that's out of 300, 350 million people in our country. That's a pretty significant number. And it's really hard to identify opportunities within that population if they're not part of a primary care program or working consistently with a specialist that almost operates as that patient's primary mm-hmm. care uh, physician. So there's some of them, some of that happening where a patient may not have a primary care physician to find that they are working through a specialist that may lessen that 75 million number, so to speak, by a very small amount. But it starts with having people enrolled in primary care programs. We have to find a way to identify people who are not you know, seek, seeking primary care today, you know, we have a shortage in, in our community, too, of primary care providers, so we really have to operate to find an increase in the number of people that want to work in that field. Uh, but it certainly starts with getting people associated with a primary care program. Um, we need consumers who are also committed. We don't talk ab- about enough about patient accountability in this process. Um, I don't know that patients are fully educated, and I'm not talking necessarily about there's an accountability in a patient. They should realize that if you eat candy bars and cheeseburgers and drink 64-ounce Cokes every day, that you're probably not on the right path to wellness. Um, but when we talk about the availability of these programs for patients, patients treat healthcare like they were in a car accident. right? So their insurance is, well, if I get in that car accident, they'll help me pay for the outcome of that accident. Healthcare, in the minds of many people, operates in a very similar way when it doesn't have to be all about react reaction again, coming back to the proactive versus reactive points from earlier. Um, so we have to educate people and let them know that, look, there's these great programs out there. You can get an annual wellness visit for free every year. There are numerous other wellness programs that support, you know, smoking cessation, obesity, depression, nutritional management. These are all free services for patients. People don't know about them. And when we don't know about them, um, it's hard to really get them moving forward in that capacity, right? So we have to do a better job educating. Now I'm going to flip sides quickly and get more into, from a program standpoint, it's, we talk about, you know, what's critical for value-based care. It's not simply identifying a person's clinical status and reacting or working to support the, the clinical piece of this, right? There's behavioral components that affect how we, you know, provide care to patients. There's social determinant issues right? Uh, there's a lot of things that go in to you know having a s- successful value-based care program, identify, uh, identifying your patients who are the most risky. There's a lot of great tools out there uh, that help shepherd that process to figuring out, okay, is, is, do I need to engage Saul sooner than Earl or vice versa because you know they have a number of underlying issues that really need to be addressed sooner rather than later, right? So, it's not just all about the clinical health, I guess, is what I want to get at here, too. It's it's really about looking at the whole spectrum of health, a whole person, person, patient-centered care that expands out to uh, figuring out all the issues that encompass a patient and really helping drive to the right interventions that can move them down the path to better care. And then it's, you know, it's all about providing that care, too, right? It's all about engaging your patients, working with good technologies that don't bog down the clinicians and get them frustrated in a bad, and kind of getting them in a bad way in advance of that engagement. So um, I, I spit a lot out. You
0: yeah, no, it's better. great. Yeah. And, and, it and, and a lot of critical elements. And, you know, the one thing that I did want to ask you, Earl, um, I appreciate the, the, the conversation here is, you know, I didn't know that 75 million Americans don't have primary care. That's shocking. Uh, I knew the number was high, but I didn't know it was seventy-five million. Um, and and um, you know the the challenge, and I'm sure a lot of people are asking this question: is so to get these folks care, you got to pay for it somehow. How do you pay for it? Or does do, does the health system eventually end up paying for it in the emergency room, and society pay for it?
1: Well, well they are today, and that's a high, the the significant number amount in the number that we're spending. On healthcare is certainly directly correlated to that. We're not if we're spending four point three trillion dollars a year on healthcare. How much of that is due to the fact that we're just not engaging our our our, our patients sooner? We're not education our ed, education. I'm sorry, educating our patients on the things that they really need to be educated on. Again, beyond just here's how you manage your diabetes. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot that goes in into the payment. And certainly, at the end of the day, especially in the Medicare space, it's going to boil down to the government being the payer for that. Yep. it's going to translate ultimately in the coming out of our tax dollars. So, so
0: yeah, look, um, that's fair. And, and that's and the look, easiest
1: way to. <laughs> yeah, but but on the other side, that is on the on the commercial side, we're just going to keep increasing premiums. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you go out to the marketplace today and you look at healthcare premiums for a family of four that isn't covered through maybe a work supplemented plan and they're just out on their own. I mean, for a basic plan that provides, you know, it's most mostly one um, that that follows a, a critical care amount, even the ones that are just, you know, you're getting some basic wellness care and you're getting you know, limited specialty care. But if you end up in a hospital, we'll cover that. The premiums for a family of four, even at that capacity, are outrageous. Yeah. So somebody's going to pay for it at the end of the day for the people that aren't managed most effectively.
0: That's fair. Look, I ask it because I know people are, are are asking it, right? And so sure. I got you guys covered. You're thinking about it. We're asking it. We're having a great conversation here with Earl from Thorough Care. We're being thorough with this care. And uh, and so, like the the next step here is is care coordination, right? So so like, talk to us about that, Earl. Uh, how does care coordination play a role in addressing these critical elements?
1: Yeah, generally speaking, it care coordination on the whole just involves you know organizing the activities associated with a patient's care amongst a number of the constituents within that patient's care team, whether it be specialists, whether it be your primary care, your primary care is usually your hub for that, where your caregivers or your care team that's associated with you, friends and family. Um, for the most part, none of that can be efficiently managed without great technology, right? Without technology that can uh, find a way to identify or support personalized health experiences that integrate with third party systems or support interoperability through partnerships with third party systems and providing the ability to identify the right actions at any moment uh, in the person's care journey, right? So you try to think about the management of all these moving parts amongst a number of different stakeholders in a care team and it becomes a pretty complex process. But at the end of the day too, as, as I mentioned previously, it comes down to the care provided. So you coordinate, you know, all the care that you'd like to. If you're not providing the right care, right, then what are you? Co- you you could be coordinating the wrong care, mm-hmm. right? So it's that's why we're really working hard as a company to really promote the identification of a lot of challenges that don't simply come to the surface in the form of a of a CPT code or a, or a healthcare claim, right? We're really helping our clinicians, you know, unwind a lot of the challenges. Like for instance, social determinants is a, is a hot topic today, Saul, right? We know people need food, water, shelter, need, have food, water, shelter, transportation needs. Are we really, are we really diving in deep enough to figure out why they need those things? Mm-hmm. There, there's, I read a great article. Uh, there's a, a publication from a, a doctor's name is Jeffrey Benner, and he got really deep into, how he implemented a number of care coordination models over time. And there was really no correlation between, you know, the things that the people, the services that people needed, especially on the social and behavioral side, and why they needed to begin with. And you come to find out most of these people had an early life issue, child abuse, sexual abuse. Are we really going that far back and, and tracking and trying to identify these types of issues that patients are experiencing? I'm not sure that. A lot of organizations are, and we really need to because we need to get to the underlying whys in terms of, you know, why these people need the level of care that they do. And then moving forward with the right care planning and the right care coordination to really effectively move
0: the needle. Yeah, thank you, Earl. And, and as far as thorough care goes, you know, would love to hear maybe an example of, of how you guys are doing some of this for, for some of your customers. Yeah, so we're, our our
1: play, quite frankly, Saul, is to be as comprehensive as we can be. So we're very strongly rooted in our ability to, you know, assess our patients. We have strong clinical content that we, that our clients can leverage to help them figure out all the challenges that a patient may be experiencing. We can automate the development of a care plan. We're starting to move the needle forward in introducing some workflow automation, helping reduce some of the challenges. I mean, we, we're not lost on us is the fact that primary care isn't necessarily set up to support all the things we're talking about in terms of interoperability and, and coordination. So we're just trying to set up the platform. We work with a number of great third party partners. We're smart enough to know that, we, that other people have built things that complement us very well, that trying to build those things on our own would just be somewhat of an effort in, in redundancy or even futility. So there's a number of partners, uh, you know, for educational content, we partner with he- Healthwise. So a few shout outs. Healthwise is a great partner. We partner with um, a company named Zeus Health, which was uh, founded by uh, Jonathan Bush, who was formerly of Athena before he, he, he started up Zeus. Zeus is a data aggregator. So they partner with a number of different provider entities and payers, and they try to build a master data lake that we can reference so that outside of the walls of our, our practices, we can find more information on a person that may not have been at our constituents disposal. Right. So partnerships like those, you know, are great and are really helping us, you know, take this platform uh, onward and upward.
0: That's great. Now, I appreciate you sharing that. And, 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 uh, and the ideal, the ideal client for you, is it, is it a, a large provider organization? Is it a smaller physician office? Like who, who, who is it?
1: Yeah. So we, We cut our teeth, so to speak, in the smaller independent doc practice area, you know, space in in mostly in rural areas of the country that really were limited in their ability to provide, you know, care coordination, care management, wellness types of services. They just didn't have, you know, lightweight platforms like ours to be able to supplement that type of operation and help them ramp up the programs all the same. So we started there, but, you know, saw we're moving well beyond just the small independent practice community. We're... We're working into, pharma, into pharmacy spaces. You know, pharmacies really engaged in in care coordination and wellness, and mostly because they realize that they have a relationship with patients that many don't even have. Even those that are associated with a primary care provider, they feel like they have a more close knit relationship with their their pharmacist. So pharmacies are realizing this, and they're starting to take advantage of that. And you know, we're working our way into that space as well, and supporting them in their onboarding of care coordination programs. Payers are certainly not out of the purview for us either. So we're going to start to work in the payer space as well. But uh, large large health systems, ACOs, there are a lot of great clinical groups that provide clinical care services as an extension to a provider in a consulting capacity. So they'll white label our product and bring it along with them and, and their implementation of these types of programs. So it's a pretty, we're starting to paint it with a, our, our Perspective client base with a pretty broad brush.
0: Thank you. I, I just want to make sure that you know the listeners take away how you guys could help them. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I got to ask the question: sure. AI. You know, it's like if I don't ask it, then I'm leaving something out. Is AI playing? <laughs> <laughs> is it playing a prominent role in in care management implementation? Yeah, it it, it will.
1: I, but I want to be abundantly clear: it will not replace the care manager. So we have to introduce opportunities, right? So there's, you know, to to enhance the relationships between, you know, between care managers and their patients because patients are just never gonna trust a computer and uh, they'll realize very quickly if they're not engaged, if they're engaging with a bot and they're not engaging with an actual human, especially as we get older as a population, and we're more, you know, aligned with how technology works, right, so people, can see through some of those types of things, but we need to be able to, you know, provide better types of services that enhance engagement, right? So we're starting to take on more, I mentioned workflow automation, maybe leverage some AI concepts to look at all, you know, all the data that we're aggregating in our platform and defining personas around certain, you know, and certain, you know, segments of the patient population, find out, you know, try to build a cohort around types of challenges that the patient, group may be suffering through, figure out what types of interventions are working for those patients and driving to improve the outcomes and what aren't, and be able to share that information a, across our client base. So we'll be leveraging some AI for that. Um, is another big deal. So we're doing, a, we're gonna start doing a lot of voice to text, but we're also gonna be pulling out the juicy parts of those conversations and really heighten the things that, that make the most sense To be drawn out in front of a care manager to focus more on, as they continue to engage with those patients, Um, we're actually partnering with a couple. We're we're about to partner with another group. I'll I'll keep their name out of it for now until we have the contract in place. But uh, they have the ability within 30 seconds of a conversation between a patient and a caregiver, a care manager, to identify if that patient's dealing with issues like depression or anxiety and just not telling you about it. You can tell based on I guess, like voice, tone markers. of voice or, or something, right, there's biometrics that they're able to figure out very quickly, and it can pop up on your screen that, hey, this person isn't diagnosed as depressed, they may very well be, and we need to get in front of that here. So there's a lot of cool components in AI, but it won't be a replacement for people. Yeah,
0: no, I love that. Thank you, uh, thank you, thank you very much for, for uh, highlighting that, Earl, and, Really, you know, the thing that, that we need to take away from this conversation with Earl, guys, and gals is the power of collaboration, right? The, you know, collaboration is the new currency if we're going to succeed in value-based care or in healthcare in general. You know, Earl, you and your company are a great example of, of being able to, to partner across the aisle and bring, you know, comprehensive solutions to, to the customers, the providers that that need them most. Speaking of health tech trends, you got an eye for these things, Errol. Is there anything that we might be missing in terms of furthering value-based care?
1: Yeah, uh, so I mentioned there's probably too many programs to list. Uh, I'll just give a couple of examples of quickly. One 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 that stands out, I had a conversation with uh, Carol Helton, who's our chief revenue officer. Uh, we were talking about, Uh, end-of-life planning, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, just sidebar conversation about expanding our uh, advanced care planning programs through our platform. We probably spend, there's probably about 800 some odd, 900 million dollars spent on Medicare every year. Somewhere I read the other day, somewhere between 15 and 25% of that is end-of-life care associated the last year of a patient or even the last weeks of a patient's life. How many times have we run into a situation, Saul, where patient ends up in a hospital? You know they're on a you know a, a breathing apparatus. They're being kept alive. They don't have any living wills. They don't have a, an advanced care plan. So people can't make decisions. There may be a, their person had a living will. They may have had a DNR, right? So we're paying for a week, two weeks hospital stay, right? In a scenario where The patient or family, whomever, may not have wanted that. They want, you know, end of life to happen a lot more peacefully. Um, And we're spending a lot of money on those types of services. So how much of that, so if we're at $900 million, a quarter added, you know, $225 million is attributed to end of life care. How much of that $225 million are we spending, right? On watching people in their final days sitting in a hospital bed or laying in a coma in a hospital bed, right? There's gotta be ways that we can address that. Uh, readmissions amounted to somewhere around $26 billion a year, people who are readmitted to the hospital within 30 days. Why is that not being managed better, right? Well, there's programs that these things, advanced care planning, transitional care. They're out there, they're published by CMS, and especially in the Medicare space. We're not taking advantage of these things. Part of the problem, to be quite frank, saw is the payment. We don't pay, we pay a, an exorbitant amount of money for healthcare, and we don't pay enough to our providers to provide value-based care. So there, the, the provider community is inherently jaded over wanting to make a transition simply over feeling like that they're going to have screws turned on them in terms yep. of the money they should make out of it. We should be paying more for value-based care services than we should be paying for the other types of reactive and... Frivolous services that we provide every day in a healthcare. Team. I
0: would say simply, simply put, it comes down to the to the dollars and cents of it, and we should just be paying more there. I I completely agree with you, and some great call outs for areas that we could be focused on. Look, we're here at the at the at, at time. Where where can people get a hold of you uh, and your team to learn more about what you guys offer?
1: Yeah, so uh, uh, easiest direction to find us is probably just through our website. Saw. Uh, www.thoroughcare.net we have a lot of great content uh, we've worked pretty hard over the past couple of years since you and I last spoke on, on putting out a lot of great videos and a lot of great you know blogs and educational content on our site so um, we worked really hard to increase our marketing here at Thorough Care so feel free to go out and check out all the great things we have out on our website um, if I could just close with one more note coming back to the last point Saul. Just another statistic for you. The yearly spend per patient per capita in America, we spend about $925 on administration. So enrolling patients, marketing big billboards for joining health plans or, you know, billing. We spend $924 a year on long-term care, of which care coordination is probably the primary part, right? So I just it's absurd to say the least. How we could spend more time on administration and actually addressing the long-term ter- care needs of our patient population.
0: Yeah, it really is. So I do is.
1: appreciate you giving me the opportunity today to talk about these things.
0: Yeah, for sure. They're Earl. near and
1: dear to our heart. And- yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Look, th- fantastic. And and uh, and folks, take advantage of, of engaging with Earl uh, and his team. Check out Thorough Care. We're going to leave the link to their company in the show notes. Earl, really grateful that you made the time for today as well. Keep doing what you do well uh yeah i'm thankful
1: for the time as well so I'm really uh appreciative of you giving me the opportunity to come and speak my piece on your podcast
0: anytime so my friend open door for you anytime right, <laughs> talk to you soon i'll take you up on that for sure <laughs>